heaven, we ask that as we approach your word that you would give us the perception to apply it correctly, that we would read it carefully, that we would see what you actually say, not what we think about it or what somebody else has told us it says, but to actually look and see what the word says. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and to guide our minds and help us to apply it to our lives in a godly fashion in Jesus' name. <clears throat> read through Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. Last week we had <clears throat> read verses 1 through 5, so we're overlapping a little bit here. <clears throat> he says, So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them all them yeah, that believe because our testimony among you was believed <clears throat> in that day. Wherefore also we pray also for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, last week we saw how Paul was using the good report of the spiritual growth in the church in Thessalonica to encourage other churches as he traveled. He would tell them what was going on at Thessalonica. <clears throat> he said, we glory in you in the churches of God. He was bragging on them. He was saying, look, this is what God's doing. You know, when we talk about what's happening here, we recognize that God's word is what's making changes here. The Holy Spirit is what's changing people's lives. But it's by his word. The, uh, in Psalm 119, verse 9, it says, How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? That's the only way that God says he can cleanse a believer's life is through his word. It's not a matter of self-effort. This is something that God has to do by his word. And by the way, in verse 11 of the same chapter, Psalm 119, verse 11, he says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. It's to change our lives. <clears throat> that's, that's talking about memorizing scripture. <clears throat> we also saw that part of the reason he could see their faith and love was evidenced by how they were responding to persecution and hardship. But we only briefly touched on the coming judgment because he did mention that in verse uh, Five, uh, five and six. I guess we went there last week, <clears throat> but we never talked very much about that. We want to see, notice here that in verses six and seven, it says God will recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. the The world persecutes believers has for thousands of years, ever since the beginning. Uh, Cain persecuted Abel. You know, this is from the very beginning. This has been a pattern. And God says he is bringing tribulation to them who trouble you, but in contrast to you who are troubled, 
He brings rest. He says, rest with us. <clears throat> so the believers will receive rest from the harsh realities of living among hostile nations, and those who are their antagonists will face judgment. Now, the question is, what judgment are we talking about? Well, there's several judgments that we would have to address. Uh, five of them we're going to talk about this morning. There's a general judgment that covers the whole world. It says that the world is under judgment because of sin. In John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says that uh, those who believe are not condemned, but they that are uh, believe not or condemned already because they have not believed on the, on the only begotten Son of God. And verse 19 says, this is the judgment, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and the world loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It says men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3, 19. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, taking the whole rest of the chapter, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and ungodliness. The, the, the King James says hold the truth, but the Greek word means hold down, suppress. And most translations it says suppress. Uh, our problem is that English has changed a lot over the last 400 years, so my teaching from the King James, I have to occasionally explain what the old word meant. <coughs> but that's the general judgment of the whole world, and it did affect us at one time. There's another judgment, the judgment of sin at the cross. Uh, in Colossians 2.14, says that he nailed the ordinances to the cross that were against us. And in 1 John 2.2, 2, it says that his blood was the propitiation, which means the satisfaction of God's righteous judgment. He was, his blood was the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You're going to run into people that say, no, he only died for the elect. He only died for the people that would trust him as their savior. No, he says he died for the whole, whole world. That the invitation is good. The invitation is, is honest to the whole world. That anybody that is willing can come to him and be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life right then. That's God's promise. The third one is the judgment seat of Christ, which is believers only. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16, he explains what that judgment seat is. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The fourth one is the judgment of the living nations, which includes believers and unbelievers, at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus returns. This is laid out in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. You can read about it there. It says, when the Son of Man shall come, uh, he shall sit on the throne of his glory by the way that will be in jerusalem because that's where he's going to be ruling from during the millennial kingdom it says he shall sit on the throne of his glory and all nations shall be shall stand before him and he'll separate them as a sh shepherd separates his sheep from his goats and he goes on to describe how and on what basis he separates them and is as to which of them are going into the kingdom alive in their natural body and which are going straight to hell pretty grim that's a judgment of the living nations. And the fifth one is the great white throne judgment, which is unrighteous dead only. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. 
It's not an exhaustive list. If we look back in time, there's been lots of judgments. Obviously, there was a judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a judgment on the world by flood at uh, the time of Noah and so forth. There's been lots of judgments. But these five are the ones that may or may not affect us, that they, they would concern us. <clears throat> we might be worried about them. So as we think about these things, I'd like you to bear in mind the two promises of God. One is in John 5.24. It says that, well, I'll quote it. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life, shall not, future tense, shall not come into condemnation, but has crossed over from death into life. And that part is past, part, uh, is past perfect tense. It means it happened in the past, but it has a permanent effect for the future. You can't go back. You can't cross back into death. That's important to remember. So those two things are good to remember when we're talking about these judgments of God, because there is judgment coming. <clears throat> and one of you know some of these we may feel like have no effect on us. Some of them have direct effect on us, and some of them we may be worried about because we're not sure. So let's look at them one by one. <clears throat> the general judgment of the whole world obviously once affected all of us. I was an enemy of God. I didn't know I was. I just thought I didn't need such a thing. I didn't believe in God. didn't believe there was a God. But God said we were all enemies. Romans 5.10 says that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Hmm. See, I didn't know I was an enemy of God, but I was. But every one of us were a lost sinner was a lost sinner, regardless of our individual qualities or actions, that we might have been a nice person, a good person, and yet lost as a ball in high grass, or we might have been a totally snarky, nasty person, and still lost as a ball in high grass. It's just that it's easier for that nasty person to see, boy, I'm a nasty person, I need a savior. When you talk to a person who thinks, well, I'm really, I'm as good as any of these people, I don't need, yeah, you do. It's not your personal goodness that does anything for you because our position is that we were outside of the Savior and we were lost. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were without God in the world without hope. That's what God says about all of us. <clears throat> I'd like to remind you of, of the flood in Genesis chapters 5 through 9. The whole story is there. And the, the key issue at the flood was position. There was only two positions that mattered. You were inside the ark or you were outside the ark. If you were inside the ark, it didn't matter if you were seasick, mad at your wife, uh, scared of the dark, tired of the smell of the animals. Uh, it doesn't matter. You're in the ark. You're safe. That position, position is perfect. The people outside the ark, I don't care if they were the world's best philosopher, uh, a philanthropist, any of the things that we might say were good things, it doesn't matter if they're young or old, sick or healthy, strong or weak, if you're outside the ark, they're lost. Everything outside the ark died. Okay, And it was a very good picture of the person of Christ because that's the fact regarding Jesus, that if your position is in Christ, your position is perfect, even if your condition, as Randy was talking this morning, his condition wasn't very good when he walked in here. And God reminded him of that, and he changed that. He confessed where he was in his heart. His condition improved, but his position didn't change at all. He was in Christ when he was at home and 
and grumbling, and he was in Christ when he walked in the door here, and he was in Christ when he was standing up here talking. His position didn't change. His condition is what changed. So we need to keep that in mind. The general condemnation covered the whole world because of our position in Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, All in Adam died. All in Christ shall be made alive. Those are two positions. You're either in the ark or outside. If you're in the ark, in the ark, you're in Christ. If you're outside it, you're still in Adam. You're still in your sins. <clears throat> okay, let's talk about another judgment, the judgment of sin at the cross. When Jesus died for us, what he accomplished was to take the judgment of God on sin for the entire human race from Adam to the last person who's ever born and died on himself. The judgment for sin was poured out at the cross. Jesus lifted the judgment of the curse by bearing the judgment of the cross. We have a hard time with that because, you see, our laws don't, don't allow for anything like that. You know, if Randy went to jail for my sin, it's just a, a travesty. It's a miscarriage of justice. I, we only allow ourselves to be punished for our own sin. Hopefully, you know, if, 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 the, if the justice system works the way it's supposed to, nobody suffers from somebody else's sin. But God, in Genesis chapter 3, initiated something called the law of the substitute. And he said that the, the seed of the woman, in Genesis 3.15, was going to come and undo the work that Satan had done there in the Garden of Eden. And we see a little bit clearer picture when Adam place his faith in God's promise and God clothed him in a skin of an animal that God killed the first blood sacrifice the animal died in place of Adam and Eve it was a substitutionary sacrifice and all the sacrifices we see throughout the Old Testament were substitutionary sacrifices looking forward to the cross where Jesus died in my place God has a special law that goes deeper than our law. It's called the law of the substitute. Jesus lifted this, the judgment of the curse by bearing the judgment of the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. This is the law of sin and death, what we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. It says that the law of the Spirit in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8, 2. But Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, to his cross. You see, his blood paid the sin debt for all humans, past, present, and future. When we talk about a sin debt, it means, you know, people say, well, I was in prison, I paid my debt to society. Well, there isn't any such thing when it comes to God. Our sin transcends everything that that could possibly be a temporary uh, punishment or a temporary offense. Why? Because even our slight things that we do that are wrong, what we've really done is looked God in the face and said, you're not God here, I am. I get to choose what I get to do. I am sovereign in my little universe. Think of the arrogance that points a finger in the face of the creator and says, I'm the one that's in charge here. Hands off. See, our, our sin transcends the, the time and space and steps into the eternal sphere and says that God's not God. 
That's why sin's such a big deal. And Jesus lifted that ordinance off of us. His, his, debt, his blood paid the sin debt for all humans, past, present, and future. In 1 John 2.2, 2, we already quoted, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the satisfaction of God's righteous judgment, of God's holiness, for not just our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That was the judgment of sin at the cross. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. <clears throat> the next one that we would want to concern ourselves with would be the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is believers only. This judgment is the judgment of the works of, of believers, not the sins. My sins were judged at the cross. My works, whether they have eternal value or not, are being judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And it gets more, we get more explanation about that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 16, where Paul says, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, which, which is Christ. He says, no man can lay another foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. Uh, but let every man take heed how he builds on that foundation, whether he builds of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. He says it's going to be tested by fire. When? At the judgment seat of Christ that the eternal value or the eternal relevance, if you want to call it that, of my works is going to be tested at the judgment seat of Christ. If it has eternal value, then God says we get a reward. If my work is burned up, it says I'll, I'll lose. I, I'm suffering a loss. I've done all these wonderful things, Lord. And he says, yeah, but I didn't do it through you. You did it all on your own. That was your whole, the whole thing was your idea, not mine. I suffer loss, it says, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, as one escaping through the flames. I, I was told about it, I haven't seen it myself, but it was a training video for firefighters <clears throat> where they, they set a uh, mobile home on fire with a firefighter inside and showed that once it started, there was only a matter of minutes before the entire thing was engulfed, and he actually had to go running out through the end and the flames were literally pushing and it was almost exploding at that point. Uh, and that's the picture that's being drawn here. It's escaping through the flames. That yeah, the judgment is there. You yourself are saved by faith or by grace through faith plus nothing. By Jesus' blood at the cross, by his judging sin in himself. But you can suffer loss. <clears throat> That's the judgment seat of Christ. Is it possible for a believer's work to have no eternal value? Of course it is. You know, we can have our own ideas and things that we want to do that turn out to just be, you know, childish ideas that we think, I'm gonna do wonderful things for God. Well, why don't you wait and see what he wants you to do? You know, Peter had great ideas on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, Oh, we we could build some booths for you and for Moses and Elijah and everybody else kind of wagged their head and didn't say anything, God spoke from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, you listen to him. Quiet child, my son's talking, listen to him. Okay, Peter had some great ideas, but that wasn't from God. We see other examples later on in Peter's life. <clears throat> but in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he meant exactly that that unless he does the work through us, remember we talked about Jesus saying, 
take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The 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 picture there is a double harness that he's asking us to join him in double harness and go where he goes and work where he works and do what he wants us to do. And he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. <clears throat> If we've been doing lots of great things, but we're not walking with him, we're not working with him, then our works may look good, but their eternal value is pretty questionable at that point. And I'm not pointing a finger at anybody because I can't see a person's heart. I remember a time when uh, Chuck and Doug McClenney had tried to share God's grace with a man, a very wealthy man, and the man cut him off. He says, I don't need that. He says, he pointed in the distance at a steeple you could see in the distance. He says, you see that church over there? So I built that church. My name's on that church. I don't need this. Really. See, so he thought he had bought God's grace. Grace means unmerited, unearned favor. If you think you've earned something from God, that's not grace. He thought he had. He thought he'd bought God's favor. He's dead now. I hope he repented, but you're either going to see Jesus as your Savior or you're going to see him as your judge. <clears throat> Moving on to the next judgment. The judgment of the living nations, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, gives us the most details about this judgment. It's mentioned in a lot of places. <clears throat> but this passage allows us to see when it'll happen. It'd be at the end of the tribulation. It says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and sit upon the seat of the throne of his glory... It'll be in Jerusalem. That's where he's going to be ruling from in the millennial kingdom. So this is at the end of the tribulation, but before the kingdom begins. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, reading through verse 46 is the last verse of that chapter. And he says, all the nations will be gathered together, all the living nations, the people that have survived the tribulation, that are still in their natural bodies. Some of them are believers, some of them aren't. He says he's going to divide them as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And the measure of the division, although it looks like it's by works, as you read it, it sounds like it's by works, it's still by faith. But the people that believed in Jesus during the tribulation, the way they showed their faith was that they cared for his children, they cared for the Israelites, and they cared for the, the tribulation saints. And those that didn't believe in him didn't care. And if they saw the Jews being persecuted, well, that's too bad. They brought it on themselves, I'm sure. They saw believers being persecuted. That's too bad. They shouldn't act like that. <clears throat> they showed their lack of faith by their works. The believers showed their faith by their works. And he says that on the basis of that, those that were believers, says that he says, enter into the joy of your Lord, into the, enter the kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. To those that were unbelievers, he says, Depart from me, you, you workers of iniquity, into everlasting punishment prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the, the judgments of the, of the living nations. The final one is the great white throne judgment. You see that in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses, well, verse 11 through 15, I guess, the end of the chapter. I want to remind you that the judge in all these cases we just read about, the judge is Jesus. John 5.22, Jesus said that the Father judges no man. He's committed all judgment unto the Son. 
that all men may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Verse 23 says, He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who sent him. So Jesus is the judge all the way from Genesis when Abraham saw him face to face and addressed him as the judge of all the earth in Genesis 18:25, He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yeah, he, he is going to. But he's the only judge. So the one sitting on the throne here in Revelation 20, verse 11, is Jesus in his full glory. And it's interesting to see that back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, when Adam and Eve, having just fallen into sin and had just clothed themselves in the fig leaves and so forth, it says they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They ran away. They hid. And here at the end of time, with the final judgment, it says that the face of him on that throne says heaven and earth flee away and there's no place for them. There's no place to hide. They're standing before the awesome glory of God with no place to hide. And this, this is only for the unrighteous dead. This is the, for those that rejected him in their lifetime. For whatever reason, for whether it was a philosophical reason, a religious reason, a moral reason, whatever they thought their reason was for rejecting Christ, they find themselves standing and seeing him face to face as their judge. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that there's two primary reasons that people reject the gospel. One is if they're religious people and they think they're too good for God. You know, I don't need that. I follow the law, man. I do good stuff. And the other is they think they're too smart for God. The Gentiles see it as foolishness. The Jews saw it as a stumbling block. The religious people were offended by the gospel, and the the Gentiles that thought they were too smart for God mocked at it. They said it was foolishness. Probably some of you have been both of those. I was. <clears throat> I thought I was too smart for God. But they're standing at the judgments at the great white throne judgment, and they're seeing Jesus face to face in his full glory. And he's their judge, not their savior. This is apparently also when the judgment of 2 Peter 3.10 comes. Remember it said, they're going back and reading here in uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in uh, 2 Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 10, it says that the heavens and earth shall pass away with the fervent heat and the great noise. That's evidently when this happens, is right before the great white throne judgment or right at that same time because after the great white throne judgment is over in chapter 21, verse 1, it says that there's a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. How? Well, it says they pass away with a fervent heat and a great noise. Evidently, that's the flaming fire portion. And Revelation 21, verse 1, confirms that connection. <clears throat> so where, here's the real question for us, because I know a lot of us get concerned about reading about all these judgments. We want to think that God's a lovey-dovey nice guy. Well, God's holy too. In fact, holiness is his primary mm, character trait. How do I know that? Well, because when 
Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> he says, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his throne, uh, it says his train filled the temple. He says, I saw also the seraphim, these angelic beings, each of them having six wings, with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. I have a real hard time imagining this, because it sounds like giant size I don't know, locusts or dragonflies or something with all these wings, but they cried out one to another, and what's instructive is what they cried out. They didn't say, love, 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 God is love. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and his glory fills the earth. That he's holy, that's his primary attribute. And, and we stand in judgment, or have stood in judgment, because we have transgressed that holiness. We've offended against it, and he still is holy. But Jesus met the, satisfied the holiness of God, of God at the cross, and now our question is, where do I stand then when this great white throne judgment is happening? It happens that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, I'm already seated in the throne with him. Now, I don't feel like that. I feel like I'm standing up in front of a bunch of people and I'm bumping my gums on the corner of 18th and Elm in Forest Grove, Oregon. I don't feel like I'm sitting in the throne with Jesus. But God says, I've not only been, I not only died with him at the cross, that's what we talked about when we were baptizing some people here, that, that when the Holy Spirit placed you into the body of Christ, he baptized you into his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and the fact that he is seated in the throne with God. That's where you are. You're already home, home safe. So where am I going to be during that great white throne judgment? With him in the throne. Am I going to enjoy that? No. How do I know? Because in Revelation 21, after the great white throne judgment is over, says that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there'll be no more sorrow, no more death, and so forth. No, it's going to be a terrible, grieving thing for us. And yet, there'll be the solemn joy of knowing this is the holy God doing something right. No, I don't like it. I'm grieved for all these people that are, that are lost. And so is he. God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But we're also going to know that God did exactly what he was supposed to do. And it's after that, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be something that we'll be crying about at the great white throne. Wipe away all tears from their eyes, Revelation 21, 4. And there'll be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for all the former things are passed away. See, that'll be the final judgment and the end of all death and sorrow and crying and pain, Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, The weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's the morning that we're looking for. Jesus is the morning star. He's called the day star and the morning star. <clears throat> and his day is eternal. And that's the morning we're all longing to see. We wake up, those of you who are still working, wake up Monday morning and think, oh, here we go again. I, I, I did it for all my working life. And I finally figured out it was Mondays I was having the worst time with. And I, I realized that not, not everyone had actually spent all weekend trying to figure out ways to annoy me. They were having a Monday too, see. 
and we're on each other's nerves because all of us didn't want to be there. But there's no more of that. It's an eternal day under Christ, and there is no more pain and no more frustration and so forth. That's the day we're looking for. That's the morning we're looking for. So the final question is, why are believers excluded from these final judgments? We see that in verse 10. He says, because our testimony among you was believed. See, we're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. The Thessalonian believers were saved sinners just like us. But Paul says that the Lord will be worshipped and admired by all those that believe in him, and he specifically reminds them of how they became believers. Paul says, uh, excuse me, Paul and Silas had brought the message of salvation to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. You can read the story there. And those who became believers did so because they believed the gospel of Christ that, that Paul and Silas bought, brought. They believed the gospel. And the long-term effect of believers' faith and the eternal worship is the eternal worship of Christ as our Redeemer. That the, the redeemed of all ages from Genesis to now uh, will be worshiping the Lord for what he has done for us. And we see that in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. He says that they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou, speaking to the Lamb on the throne, speaking to Jesus. It says, you're worthy to open the book and to break the seals thereof because you have taken us out of, you redeemed us out of every language and tribe and people and nation on earth. And you've made us to be kings and priests before you. We've become your saints. That's the reason they'll be worshiping him is because what he's done for his people. <clears throat> You want to remember that at the judgment of the living nations for the first time, people in their physical bodies, their natural bodies, will be seeing Jesus in his full glory. I could argue that, well, they kind of did on the Mount of Transfiguration too. Yeah, yeah, but not like at the judgment of the living nations where we'll be sitting on the throne of his glory face to face with people that are still in their natural bodies and some of them getting ready to go into eternal punishment and some of them going getting ready to enter into the millennial kingdom a thousand year reign in their natural bodies here on earth with Jesus reigning personally verses 11 and 12 he says wherefore we also pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> See, all the things we've been talking about are, are positional truths. People that were inside the ark weren't drowning. People that were inside the ark weren't dying. People that were inside the ark weren't getting wet even. People that were outside the ark had all of the above. These are positional truths. And our position in Christ is what separates us from the brunt of these judgments. <clears throat> They're true because we're in Christ. That's our location, our position. Positional truth, though, should result in conditional changes. Because, I'll use Randy as an example again, since he shared his own struggle this morning, because he was positionally and still is positionally in Christ, and that's never going to change then he was open to the conditional change that God required of him when he walked in the doors here. God woke him up and said, hey, hey, 
think about this. Think about where you are and who you're dealing with. Wake up. Okay. Positional truth requires conditional change. Not to maintain it. It's just that that's what it requires of us. That's what happens because of it. And Paul said he was praying for these believers that their lives would be pleasing to God so that he would agree that they lived up to their calling. We talked about that last week, being worthy of our calling to live up to it. He said that they were acting in a manner worthy of their family connection to him. <clears throat> and the result in their lives was that God would fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness in them, that his goodness was happening through them to the people around him, and his good pleasure was being shown in their life. His grace was manifested in their life, and that others around them got to see that grace and glorify God because of what they could see happening in the lives of the believers. You see, they saw the power of God working in their lives and the work of faith being done by the believers. The result is that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. See, it's all according to grace. He says, by the grace of the Father and the Son. We're not to fear condemnation from God, but I think it's completely healthy to fear displeasing him. I don't want to displease him. I, I want him to be able to smile on what I'm doing and, and to enable me to, to carry out his work. Uh, to do what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't want to be off on my own and just doing my own thing and trying to claim that it pleases God. If I'm, not, if I'm doing my own thing, it doesn't please God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I do fear displeasing him, but it's not because I fear being condemned to the great white throne judgment. I belong to him through his grace, by his grace, through faith. That can't change. But my condition can change daily or even moment by moment. We need to think of these things. <clears throat> we don't live in such a way as to please him that we're missing out on our only opportunity to serve him and to serve with him. This is our only chance. This is, this is they say, life ain't no rehearsal. This is the gig. Okay? This isn't a practice run. This is it. We get one chance to walk with God and to serve him, or not. <clears throat> but you make your choices today. You make your choices now. When we take communion together, we're publicly stating that we have placed our faith in Jesus' shed blood at the cross as full payment for our sins. Each of us is saying, Jesus died for me, and he's coming back to take me home with him. You see, that's what we have in common, and that's what we share in, in the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd allow us to see you as our Savior and as our Lord. We know that we'll stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ to receive reward. We desire to be worthy of that reward. We'd ask you to teach us to constantly walk with you and to let our daily behavior have eternal worth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. <clears throat>